I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 22. We'll look at only one verse today. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I don't know of many things in life more difficult than raising children. This sentiment was expressed in a first grader who was asked by her teacher, as she asked the whole class, when you grow up, what do you want to be? So the students started answering the question, and it was those relatively familiar answers, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a nurse, I want to be all of these things, until she got to the little girl who said, I want to be a mother. Sort of caught the teacher off guard and she looked at her and said, well that, that is so noble an answer. How many children do you want? To which the little girl replied and said, I don't want any children. <laughs> I just want to be a mother. <laughs> are, are you aware that for the last several years in the United States, almost 4 million babies have been born every year? Now, thinking about the number of adults who are involved in that, you exponentially have to add double that, 8 million adults becoming parents with the arrival of those children. And according to the government agency that issues these kinds of statistics, they say that of those 3.9 million that are born every year, those 3.9 million babies, that approximately 40% of those are born to parents when this is their first child. Do you remember what it was like when your first child was born? Were you ready? Would anybody here stand up and say, I, I, oh, I was ready, I was prepared, I, I felt so wonderfully rewarded when my first child arrived. I can honestly tell you that I cannot say that. I was scared to death and still am to some degree. I am inclined to share with you a scripture this morning about parenting. It's, it's under the big umbrella of motherhood and what it takes to bring children into the world and to raise them properly, but I want to assure everybody here that this verse is for all of us. It's not just for moms. It's not even just for dads. It can be for those of us who yet will have children, or if you have grandchildren, if you have nieces, if you have nephews, for all of us, this verse comes into play 
to some degree on some level. And I am inclined to share this verse with us this morning basically from two different motivations. The first is this. Fifteen months ago on February the 1st, our first grandchild came into the world. It was the highlight of the decade for me. Can I say it that way? I mean, for the last 10 years, I think that's probably just one of the grandest things that have ever happened in my life. Got to see him just for a little while yesterday. And for the past 15 months, as I reflect on my daughter and son-in-law and their parenting skills, it has occurred to me that in this short amount of time, in the last 15 months, I have become an expert on parenting. (laughs) Because I watch and I observe them and I listen to them and there are times that I walk away and I say very little. But I think to myself, Oh, Lord, help them. That's really what I feel. And I want to say, Lord, tell me how to help them. But all of us know that parents have to go through that process of learning what works and what doesn't work. I remember when our firstborn was, came into the world, Brittany, she's, I don't know how old now, 30 years old, almost 30. Can't do the math that fast. We read books. We prayed together, Angie and I did. We had the counsel and advice of friends and family and um, even in light of all the books we read and all the prayers and all the counsel, we still made mistakes. And you just, it seems to be inevitable. But as a grandparent, I look at my grandson and his family and how he's growing up and I say to myself, "Mm, I could offer some advice there if only they'd ask but I doubt they will. So I'm motivated to share it from that perspective. I'm also shared from 14 years as an educator of being in a school system. Of those 14 years, 11 of those years, I've been an administrator. I spent only three years in the classroom and that was required for me to get an administrative certification. But I was quickly moved into an administrative position and have dealt with countless parents at least over the 11 years. But even as a teacher, I had parent-teacher conferences that all teachers love, right? We just love to have parent-teacher conferences. And I cannot tell you the number of times that in meeting with parents, the parents have just sort of counted to me all the things that they had dealt with with that child or were dealing with with that child. And usually by the time they come to the principal's office, there's a a crisis in the life of that child or there's an issue at school, a concern. And so you bring everybody to the table and you try to talk through it and figure out how you're going to respond and what's best for the student and best for the child and so forth. And the parents have looked at me, and some of them know that I preach. Some of them know of my faith. I I, I don't carry my Bible around every day. Maybe I should, but I don't carry it around and just wave it as a flag every day. I feel like my faith ought to be shown in my demeanor and the decisions I make and my speech and the way I present myself. And some of them have looked at me and said, I know what the good book says, 
Oh, what does it say? I know that verse that says, train up a child in the way he will go and when, or should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I nod and I politely respond to that. And when they walk out of the office, I say to myself, I wish under different circumstances I could let you know that that is not what that verse means. See, the majority of us have the idea that if we bring our children into the world and if we bring them to church, if we get them involved in youth activities, if we read the Bible to them, and maybe even if they trust Christ and they're baptized, Somewhere along the way, they may sow some wild oats. It may take them a little while to get up Fool's Hill, make a few bad decisions, embarrass us, embarrass the family. But sooner or later, they'll come around to their senses and they'll come back to the Lord, right? Isn't that what he's promising? No, not at all. I want to tell you something. I think that downplays the importance of this verse and it makes light on the promise of God if that's all we think. Because what, what positive approach would there be if we say, my child's going to embarrass me and my family, it's going to make a bad decision and you know, going to have some rough waters along the way? They don't have to. They may. They don't have to. Well, if that is not what this verse means, then what does it mean? Well, let me break it down for you this way. First of all, I want you to be mindful of the fact that the book of Proverbs was written by multiple authors. But the majority of Proverbs, we believe, was written by none other than Solomon, that wise king, that son of David, who eventually became the king of Israel, built the temple, you'll remember, who was also the author of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. As a student and an observer of life, Solomon, writing this passage, I believe, just sort of deposits this golden nugget right here at verse 6 where he says, let me, let me remind some parents that when we raise our children, if we train them right, we're to train them up in the way they should go, and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. But let me show you what that means. First of all, look at the phrase train or train up. That word is used not just in the Old Testament, but in extra biblical literature in about three prominent ways. Now, it's used in more ways than that, but I'm only going to mention the top three. The first way it is used is in the domestication of animals, mainly the training of horses. Now, some of you may have even been a part of this, but you can imagine what it's like to bring a horse in that, that has never been ridden, and uh, it sort of has its own idea of the way things ought to be, right? You put a saddle on that horse, and that horse might throw it off and say, oh, no, you're not putting that weight on my back. I don't. And so what does the trainer have to do? The trainer has to walk the horse around the the, the lot for a little while. It, he has to talk to the horse, horse whisperer kind of thing, you know, and, and put the bit in the horse's mouth and get the horse used to it and feel the tug and, you know, the pull of the bit in his mouth. And then you put the weight on his back and then eventually somebody will get on the horse and you're just kind of walking him around and you're kind of getting him used to your voice and what you're telling him to do and so forth. There's there's the training of that horse. Now, some horse trainers will say, 
There have been some horses whose spirit I could not break. You ever heard anybody say that? In the training of horses, there is a moment where the trainer says, I know that I have broken the spirit of the horse so that the horse understands I'm in charge. I'm the one in control. This word training actually refers to that process from time to time. But it also refers to the training of an athlete. Well, you think about all the conditioning and all the practicing and and all the rigorous routines that an athlete has to go through to get ready. There is this, this sense of preparing for an event, preparing for a game, preparing to perform. And so the athlete has to condition him or herself, has to get in good shape, has to make sure they're eating the right foods, building their body and body strength, their mind, their agility, and all those kinds of things. It is the training of an athlete. That is the second way that this word is used. But there is a third way. And the third way, I think, is probably the more significant way that it is used in this verse. You know what it is? It is the idea that a midwife would assist in bringing a child into the world as the mother gives birth, and when she holds the infant, they clean the baby, they're preparing the baby to give the baby to the mother. The midwife, now this is in a Jewish tradition, would take, take a mixture of date and lemon juice and with their finger, they would swab the inside of the infant's mouth. What they are doing is they are cleaning the palate. And they are preparing that infant to receive nourishment and food that it so desperately needs in order to survive. You know what Solomon was talking about when he said, train up a child? He's talking about the responsibility that we have as adults to create an environment that increases the capacity and the thirst and the hunger of that child for spiritual things. That's what he's talking about. When he says train up a child, the word child is very broad. It's, it, we think about an infant, toddler, you know, preschooler and those formative years. Do you know that this word child that he uses here refers to a child from its birth all the way through late adolescence? Train up a child in the way he should go way he should go. Now that's an interesting phrase as well. You have to go back to Psalm 7 to see this word way used in the Old Testament. You know what the reference is? It's a reference of an archer who bends a bow and prepares to shoot an arrow. It's also used again in Psalm chapter 11. Same reference, same image, same picture of an archer who is bending a bow to shoot an arrow. Now Put that picture in this verse in Proverbs 22. What Solomon's saying? Train up a child from birth, late adolescence, in the bend of the bow, which represents the way that he should go. Now, the bend of the bow, by the way, all of us have two bents. Two bents. One is toward good. The other is toward evil. One is positive, one is negative. 
what Solomon is saying is that you as a parent and I as a parent, grandparent and so forth and so on, we have to make sure that our influence as we are creating the capacity for a child's hunger and thirst for spiritual things is that we are constantly moving them in that good and proper and wholesome and holy direction of the Lord. And then he says, and when he is old, that word old there in Proverbs 22, 6, refers to a child when he begins to grow a beard. Now, I don't mean just peach fuzz on his, on his chin and cheeks. I'm talking about a full beard, probably somewhere close to 18, 19, 20 years old. And what he is saying is when he gets to that point in his life, and this applies to girls as well, no beards, please, is that there is this idea that there is a reflection stage where the child begins to think about all that they have learned and all that the ways that they have been influenced as a child. And now they begin to weigh the options of how they will live their lives as an adult. Mark Twain said it best. He said, my parents learned so much between the time I graduated from high school and I finished college. What he was saying is that I realized just how wise my parents were because I went through that stage of education, but yet I was constantly thinking about all that they had taught me. Well, I want to ask you a question this morning, just, just a simple question. Why would, why would we need to know this? Why would this be in the Bible? Well, well do you remember the two bents? One toward the good way, one toward the negative way. Our desire, of course, is that children understand the good way, the proper way that life ought to be lived, the, the plan that God has for their life, and that they follow that plan. But Solomon, as the wisest man who's ever lived, knew that every family always has a tendency to hand down those negative traits, those things that we don't want our children to learn, but seemingly they innately do, whether by observation or whether we actually teach them unknowingly, this is not the right way, but this is the way we're going to do it. And so they begin to follow the paths of parents, but they're not following the good way, the proper bend of the boat. You say, well, I, I still don't follow. I'll give you an example. Who's the most famous family in the Old Testament? Do you know? It'd be Abraham, right? Abraham and Sarah, the father of the Jewish nation. God promised your descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. So it would have to be Abraham. When you read about Abraham in the book of Genesis, do you remember how as he began to travel to that distant land where he didn't know he was going, he's taking his wife along the way, and the Bible says that as he entered the land and he dealt with strangers and people that he really did not know, that he feared for his own life. Get this now, because his wife was so beautiful. And he feared that if he told them that she was his wife, they would kill him in order to take her for their very own. But instead, he told them what? That's my sister. 
Now I want you to listen to that for just a minute. The truth is she was actually his half-sister. But a half-truth in this situation is a lie. And I think most of us would, you know, I have a problem with this, by the way, and just, it's just me. It's just the way I think. I think you'd have to kill me to take my wife. So, he, you know, he feared for his life. said, I'm going to save my own skin by telling him that's my sister. That doesn't sit very well with me. But that's what he did. And Abraham did it on more than one occasion. They asked, who is this? Well, that's my sister. And they left him alone. Do you know that he passed that also along to Isaac? Have you ever read in Genesis chapter 26? Look at verse 6. If you want to flip back there, listen to what it says. So Isaac, you remember, was the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. Isaac lived in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful, <laughs> evidently. Abraham coached his son and said, now let me show you how to pick a girl. His wife, Isaac's mother, was beautiful. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was beautiful. So he said the same thing. Who is this? This is my sister. And then look at what it says. <clears throat> they might kill me think, because she's beautiful. Verse 8, it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was... <laughs> In the King James, it says sporting with his wife. My Bible says caressing. I'll just tell you, the word sporting there doesn't mean they were playing tennis. It means he was loving her. He was kissing her. He was, he was embracing her. And Abimelech looked and saw Abraham pass that same down to Isaac. Well, what about his son Jacob? Do you remember Jacob? With the conspiracy of the mom, he stole the birthright from Isaac. That was Jacob. They deceived others that this was their sister. Jacob deceived his own father. Jacob then passed it down to his own boys, did he not? Because he had many sons. And a favored son was who? Joseph, remember? And he was sold into slavery and they took that coat of many colors, they dipped it in blood, took it back to their father Jacob and said, he's been killed by wild animals. They lied to their own father. So lying evidently was a problem, but it was passed down from one generation to the next generation down to four generations of fear. It got even worse even when the famine came and the boys went to Egypt. Joseph is on the throne. He's in that place of prominence, by the way, and they, they didn't know that that was Joseph, remember? But they're asking for grain, and they said, well, and Joseph knew it was his brothers. Joseph said, well, do you have any other brothers? They said, we have Benjamin at home. And he said, well, go get him and bring him back. Only when I know that I can trust you will we give you more grain. When they went back to Jacob to get Benjamin so that they could go back and get more grain, do you remember what Jacob told them? He said, why didn't you lie? Why, why, didn't, you, why didn't you tell them you didn't have any more brothers? Still in that stage in his life, he's still lying. He's still promoting deception with his boys. How do you overcome this? Here it is. Train up a child in the way he should go, in the bend of the bow that points them in spiritual things. But what you're doing is you're creating the capacity for hunger and thirst for spiritual things in their own life. That's what this verse means. Well, how do you do that? 
I'm glad you asked. I want to show you four things this morning very quickly. Very quickly. And I'm going to use the word time as an outline. It's an acronym. This is going to be very quick. But I hope you can take this with you and remember it. So time. Make time to train. That's what I'm telling you. If you're going to train up children, here's what you need to do. T stands for together. Plan time for you and your child to be together. Now you know as well as I do, as they get older, this gets more difficult. Because they have more freedom. They get car keys. They still are polite enough to ask permission, but you give them permission to go and spend time with friends. And that is well and that is good. And young people, I want you to know, I'm all about you having friends and growing socially and developing in that way. But there's also a time for you as a family to come together and to be together. Now that can be something very simple. It can be as simple as you taking a child for a burger or take them to get an ice cream cone or to a movie or something like that. But as parents, I'm here to tell you, there needs to be time where you as a family come together. It doesn't always have to be serious. It doesn't have to be a tone of, I, I need to tell you some things. I, I want to lecture you. I want to I share some insights. No, no, no. Just, just get to know your child. You know, I wish I'd talked about loving your children. I mean, that's, that's a given, isn't it? Do you love your child? Do you love them enough to say, we're going to make this a priority to be together as a family? Do you know your child? How do you know children? How do you get to know? You watch, you observe, you listen. And I think that's difficult for parents a lot of times because we think that we are challenged with the responsibility to dispense wisdom. And we do have to teach and instruct. It's all a part of it. But there comes a point when our children get of age that we simply need to observe and watch and listen. And you know what will happen is that if you, if you do that enough, you will soon know your child. You'll know what makes them tick. You know what's motivating them. You know what's exciting them about things in life, which leads me to my second point. Not just being together, but interest. Find out what your children are interested in and attach yourself to that interest as best you can so that you may relate to them on that level. Now, listen carefully. There are a lot of things that our children are interested in that we don't want them to be interested in. That is that bend in the wrong direction. But there are other things out there that may interest them. I have a perfect example of this. <clears throat> My girls were small, two daughters. I wanted so badly for them to be athletes. I wanted them to play softball. I wanted them to play soccer. And so when they became of the right age, what did we do? We marched them down to the park and we signed them up. And I bought them the cleats and the gloves and the hats and the uniforms, the shirts, whatever they needed. And boy, we went out to the, to the baseball field, to the complex, right? And in the, oh, that's, I, I get chill bumps when I think about it. You can hear the crack of the bat, you know, in the background of the older kids that are playing and all. And you're like, and you get a pop of the glove. And you're like, oh man, this is it. This is it. And you take them around and you show them, Hunt, sweetheart, that's what you're going to be one day. You know, this, this, you're going to be a part of this and you're going to be an all-star, you know. No. Didn't happen. My girls, 
With Brittany, it's all about, I'm ready for another snow cone. Baby, you've had three, and it's the second inning. Let's just hold off for a minute, see if we can get a little more of this game behind us. With Ashley, she's out somewhere out there in, you know, the outfield, and she's looking for four-leaf clovers on the field. And the ball is going over her head, just rolling by. One rolled right by her, and she looked, and she picked it up and said, I got it, I got it. Well, throw it in to the infield. I thought I taught them a look. No. Mm -mm. What were their interests? Other things. Music, cheerleading. Thankfully, they were good students. We really ne never had to get on to them and study. Would you please get this grade up? They would come in crying if they had a B. And I was trying to say, oh boy, you didn't get that from me. Find out where your children are interested and, uh, and attach yourself to those interests and, then, and do what you can to motivate them and inspire them in, in, that, in that part. M of time stands for make memories. Make memories. That doesn't cost money. You know, there, there were times when growing up, your, parent would, your parents would buy you something and you, you may remember that special gift that they gave you, but a Far and above and beyond all the gifts that you've been given for birthday or Christmas or whatever the occasion was, it's the experiences that you had with family that became important. And that goes back to the T of together. You can't have those memories if you're not together, together, together as a family. So together, interests, find out what interests are, make memories, and then E is encourage. Encourage your children. I go back to my thought as an educator in those parent-teacher conferences. I used to tell my teachers, please, when you come, I know that child is sending you home in tears every day. I know, I know you get a stomach ache when you think about the class where that child is going to be. And I, I know that there are times when you just really, really, really wish you didn't have to put up with that. I said, but when you sit down with that parent, I want you to put yourself in their position and would you please try to say something positive. And boy, they have been creative with that. He has nice hair. He has beautiful teeth. All kinds of things that has absolutely nothing to do with that, that child's performance in the classroom or his disposition there. But, but they try to come up with something positive. Do you know there was a study done in Orlando, Florida a few years ago that said that teachers, 75% of the time that they address a child personally by name, they address something negatively in that child and only 25% do they say something positive. wonder how that translates to parents to encourage to, to, to build them up to express the positive side of love and affirmation I have a short video it's only about 60 seconds I want to show you you don't have to see and listen as much as you have to read if you would play that video I want to show you that video this morning it speaks to the encouragement of a parent amazing, isn't it? The power of a positive word. Are you concerned about the future of the world? The future of our nation? 
when we train children in the way they should go, we can change the future.